Welcome to Agape Ministries Podcasts, a whole new way of thinking. Episode 70, Part 2 of Father Ronald Rollhouse's teaching on Naming Our Moment Biblically. Secondly, second metaphor, Jesus on the borders of Samaria. This is a wonderful uh, text that's in three Gospels and generally a very misunderstood text. Let me give you the text. And again here, the first line is very important. Um, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they say, one day Jesus was walking on the borders of Samaria when he met a Syrophoenician woman. Now that isn't again the setup for the homily, that is the homily. One day Jesus is walking on the borders. Now whenever you hear the word borders in scripture, that's a lot more than simply a geography. See, borders always means the edge. So read the text this way. One day Jesus was walking along. It's a far-reaching, very important text. Fourth, thirdly, we are also in the upper room. What's the upper room? We're in a time of waiting. Again, I want to go back into Luke's Gospel. You know, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is a very different structure. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three Gospels, they all end with the Ascension. And they, have the, the, they all three picture the Ascension pictorially. So they have Jesus going up to heaven physically, like one of these space things from Cape Canaveral, except he goes slowly, you know. But all three Gospels end where Jesus goes out on the Mount of the Ascension. He gives the last instruction to the disciples. And then he blesses them. And up to heaven he goes very slowly, promising that he's going to come back. Now, but they don't all write this up the same way. So when you read Matthew's Gospel, you get the sense that Matthew's church must have been very self-confident. This was a church that was obviously young, and full of, you know, energy and positive and, and, you know, great hope. So in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' last words are, he says, Now, I'm leaving, but go out and baptize the whole world in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Talk about a little missionary project, you know, just go out there and just... <laughs> Jesus, that the, the Jesus of Matthew simply tells him, go out and baptize everybody in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, make disciples of every nation. That must have been a confident church. Luke's church, you get the sense they didn't have that confidence at all. In fact, they had no confidence at all. When Luke's Jesus leaves, he doesn't say, now go out there and just take on the world. No. When Jesus is leaving, Luke's church is pretty dispirited, and they don't know what they're going to do because up to now Jesus has told them what to do and they've always known what to do and now he's going away so what should we do? And Jesus says go back into the city and don't leave the city until you feel yourself clothed with new power from on high. Very interesting. He says go back into the city and don't leave the city until you feel some new power stirring inside of you. And then they go back singing songs into the city. It's the end of the Gospel of Luke. And then the Acts of the Apostles, which is just Luke chapter 2, really, because Luke wrote that. It's the second book of Luke. 
it begins with them in the upper room. They're waiting in the upper room, and they're waiting for something new to happen. Now, to my mind, this is where we are today as a church in the West. It's not true for Africa. For instance, in Africa or Asia, in Africa right now, the church is young. It's exploding with growth. It's the, act, it's, it's the church of the Acts of the Apostles, you know. In Africa right now, you can't build seminaries fast enough or convents fast enough. You, you have a mass, everybody comes and they want three hours or they feel cheated, you know. Uh, those of you who are priests, try this sometime, just a three-hour Sunday Eucharist so as to not cheat the people. Okay, those are young churches. But the church in the West, the developed world in, 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 in secular context, Western Europe, North America, Japan, Australia, and so on. We are a church right now very much in the upper room. What does that mean? Well, give you a line here. See, we're waiting for Pentecost to happen because we don't know what we should be doing. You know, I've been ordained for 32 years. And during the last 20 years of that, I have gone to more church gatherings, more church meetings, more kind of evangelical conferences, and we're all searching for what should we be doing? What do youth want? What do people want in their preaching? Where should the church be going today? And after 20 years of that, I've decided this. And I can say this fairly with fair, a fair amount of security. I don't know, but neither does anybody else. Okay. <laughs> And that's not a bad spot to be. We're in the upper room. We are waiting to be clothed with new power, with new wisdom. We're waiting for a new Francis of Assisi. We're waiting for a new Claire. We're waiting for a new Thomas More. We're waiting for a new Augustine. We're waiting for something, for somebody to come and restructure our imagination. And in the meantime, and there's a humility in saying that, you know, we're, we're in a time in which we're waiting. It's a good place to be. We're in the upper room. I want to quote, quote Peter Murren to you. Peter Murren was Dorothy Day's spiritual director, and he was the visionary behind Catholic Worker. Dorothy was the saint and the person who made it go. Peter Murren was the visionary. And Peter Murren used to say, and all of you are church people, you need to know this line, okay? Murren used to say, when you don't know what else to do, keep going to meetings. Okay, got that? As a Christian, when you don't know what else to do, keep going to meetings because Pentecost happened at a meeting. <laughs> True, Pentecost happened at a church meeting. You know, Pentecost is a very different event than a lot of other major revelatory events in history. See, Pentecost did not happen to a solitary praying in a church. It didn't happen to a solitary meditating on a mountain. It didn't happen to somebody sitting under a tree like a Buddha. It happened to a group of Christians in a church room. And the church rooms then were as humble as right now. They didn't have styrofoam cups, but the rest was about the same. You know? And we always glamorized this upper room, but it looked like your church meeting room. And people kept meeting until the Spirit comes. And then we go out and we take on the world. So today, there's a humility. Where are we at? We're in the upper room. We're waiting for Pentecost. We're back in the city, waiting to be clothed with new power from on high, that we know how to go again to our own children, who are the most difficult missionary field of all. 
You know, today the most difficult missionary field in the entire world, I belong to a missionary order, and we're trying to address that. But we know for centuries we've been sending missionaries to Africa, Asia, South America, the North Pole, South Pole. Now we're realizing we're trying to, we have to send missionaries to London and Birmingham and Washington and Calgary and Sydney and Perth. That's the most difficult missionary field of all. And you know something? When we go to Africa, we know what we're doing. When we go to London and Perth and Sydney and Calgary, we don't know what we're doing. And there we need to go into the upper room. Your kids are the most difficult missionary and most important missionary field in the world today. And uh, it's important to name that. So at the time, we don't have answers. And you know, that's okay. We don't need answers. We just need faith. We just need trust. And when we don't have answers, there's a place where we go as Christians. We go back to the upper room. You know, Jesus is giving us that instruction, go back into the city, go to these conferences, go and wait till Pentecost can happen again. We're on, we're waiting in the upper room. And lastly, while we're waiting in the upper room, we're also on the shores of Babylon. What are the shores of Babylon? That's the image of the exile. And today our faith and our church is very, very much a faith and a church in exile. What does that mean? Well, let's look at the original exile. You know, it took Israel a long time to take the promised land. And God had promised them this land, and finally they take it. After the exile, and um, pardon me, after the desert experience, and they get into the promised land, and then they have some generations of wonderful stability in which their faith was very much anchored in three things. God had promised that his presence would be in the land. This land, and you'll know I'm your God because you have this land. And that the king. God says, you'll know I'm present through your king who will rule in my place. And then the temple. You'll always know that I'm God and I'm real because you have this place to worship me. So the three pillars, they had three pillars that anchored the Jewish faith before the exile. The land, the king, and the temple. Well, the Babylonians come in 587 and they take the land. And they killed the king and they deported all the people, except a few poor people, they kept the servants. They deported everybody to Babylon. And now the people are on the shores of Babylon, where we have these wonderful psalms that were written. By the rivers of Babylon, there we hung up our harps. And we said, we'll never sing joyous songs again. We're on the shores of Babylon. Why do I say this? Well, let's look at, the, at our exile. You know, we're all like those ancient people. We always pig, and we can't help but do this. And we'll do it until we meet God face to face. We always peg our faith on certain things. This is what I anchor my faith on. That the catechism of my youth, or the Pope in Rome, or, or the church, or something. These are the great stability, the faith of my dad, whatever. We, we, we unconsciously, and sometimes consciously, anchor our faith on certain pillars. But the problem is, none of these pillars are God. And everything that isn't God, will pass. And all of a sudden the church 
your sexual abuse scandals, or the church that we believed on in the Gregorian chant and stuff, it's all gone and we're left. And then the question is, where is God? God promised to be with these and now God is not in these things. And remember the wonderful answer in Deuteronomy, that is the book of Deuteronomy, where God answers their laments and he says, I will, you will find me again when you learn to search for me with your whole heart, your whole mind, and your whole strength. I will be real again when you begin to search for me with your whole mind, your whole heart, your whole strength. See, because God is not in any land, or king, or pope, or religion, or temple. God is God. But, more humorously, you know, the laments of Babylon, we say that song, say it a couple times a week when you see the breviary. By the rivers of Babylon, there we hung up our harps, and we said, we'll never sing songs of joy in a foreign land. What does that sound like? What do the laments of Babylon sound like today? And the reason I picked this text, you hear them all over, in liberal circles, in conservative circles, in circles of the center, in every kind of circle. Well, they sound like this. That's excuse the crassness, but it's all the whining and the bitching we hear in every circle. Somebody took my church away from me, you know. So if you move in liberal circles, they're all complaining or we're complaining about these young conservatives. We had Vatican II going and it was going wonderfully. And along come all these, this new crop of bishops and young conservatives and now we're the orphans of Vatican II. You know, that's the lament of Babylon. You move into conservative circles, the same thing. You have all these middle-aged, burnt-out liberals who, you know, have, you know, they've usurped the church <laughs> and they're destroying our faith and so on. You know, and notice what's missing in both liberal and conservative circles. Joy. Nobody's happy. We're whining, whining. You know, whenever you hear somebody whining or you hear myself whining or yourself, it used to be better or this or somebody's taken my church from me, that is, by the rivers of Babylon, there we hung up our harps and we blamed the liberals or the conservatives or we blamed the Pope or we blamed uh, the secular world or we blamed somebody for taking our church away from us. That's the lament of Babylon. And I bring it up today because you hear it all over, you know. We're very much not inside of our own church. And again, that's not a bad place to be. That's where we are. You know, I grew up in an age, I was, I was a kid in the 50s and the 60s. I looked at my parents and their generation. They weren't on the shores of Babylon. They had other problems. But uh, you didn't have these laments. They didn't have a sense that somebody has stolen their church from them or somebody was trying to steal their church or their liturgy or something from them, you know. And there was more joy in their faith. Today, one of the things that, that often happens in our faith is that too often it's joyless. It's not that it isn't real. They had real faith in Babylon, but it wasn't a very happy faith. It wasn't a very happy time to be a Jew in Babylon. Today, sometimes it's not a very happy time to be a Catholic or to be a Christian in this country or in the Western world in general. Again, that's not a bad thing. It's important to name that. As Hillman says, a symptom suffers less when it knows where it belongs. Not everything can be fixed or cured, but it should be named properly. So those are the four images. Tomorrow I'll, go, I'll venture into some, some other ones that even go deeper. That today, where are we at as Roman Catholics? 
as Christians, as believers in the Western world, were very much on the road to Emmaus with that constant temptation to discouragement. And with discouragement, the constant temptation is to walk away from the dream and to say it's not working and to head for human consolation. We're very much on the borders of Samaria. We're in a new, whole new situation on the edges of ethnicity, of religion, and gender as, was, as we've once known them. And we're very much in the upper room, not sure what to do, waiting. New power, new vision, new imagination, new Pentecost. And we're very much, sadly, sometimes on the shores of Babylon, whining, whining, you know. It used to be better <laughs> if only somebody, the liberals, conservatives, bishops, popes, somebody, the secular world, hadn't stolen our faith from us. I want to end with a poem from Rilke, the, the German poet. A beautiful, and it, it, it's a poem about our struggle and our wrestling with this, and it's called A Person Watching. Rilke says, listen, listen. What we choose to fight is so tiny, and what fights with us is so great. If only we could let ourselves be dominated, as things do by some immense storm, then we would become strong and would no longer need names. Because when we win, it's always with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. It's an interesting line. This is, when we win, it is always with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. Now, every time we beat something, we beat something smaller than ourselves. Not, not a happy thought. He says, what's extraordinary, what's eternal, God does not want to be beaten by us. I mean the angels who come in scripture, in scripture and begin to wrestle with us. Whoever is beaten by an angel goes away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that molded him and changed his shape. Winning does not tempt such a person because this is how we grow by being defeated decisively by constantly greater things. Winning does not tempt such a person, because this is how we grow, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater things. We're struggling with God. It's a wonderful faith struggle, and um, these metaphors are some attempt to name that. Thank you. So thank you for taking the time to listen to these episodes. Our prayer is that as you listen and reflect on these teachings, that you'll be encouraged to continue your journey, to maximize your potential, to have a good and a happy life. So sign in again next week for more teaching on how you can follow the Jesus way to experience your life as filled with meaning, purpose and joy. So God bless and stay safe.